Dave Brown right along ringside. By golly, we're about ready to go with more big action. Thank you very much, and welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm Gordon Sully, your host, and we have quite an hour in store for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Championship Wrestling at ringside. This is Vince McMahon, along with wrestling's only living legend, Bruno Sammartino. Welcome to this week's edition of Mid-South Wrestling Television. I'm your host, Boyd Pierce, another outstanding card. Hey, guys, and welcome back to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. That's right, it's 100% territory talk, each and every time out. And I am your host, Ray Russell, as we return yet again with another edition of Regional Wrestling, tackling Mid-South Wrestling. That's the UWF in 1986. And we'll be joined again in just a few moments by guest co-host Roman Gomez as we begin looking into the month of February 1986 in the Mid-South Territory. But first, just a friendly reminder, guys, that the Regional Wrestling Podcast, along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, now covering 1987 in the WWF, and Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, chronicling the entire weekly breakdown of the Monday Night War. It's Raw versus Nitro, we're smack dab in the summer of 96 over there right now on Monday Warfare, as a brand new season has begun to drop. And you can listen to all of those shows and more over at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located at WrestleCopia.com, that's WrestleCopia.com, and everywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts. You can follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade, that's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade, also, follow and like us at Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And you can follow us on social media for all the latest goings on at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And I'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find us there at YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade, uploading new footage all the time as I continue to preserve my old VHS collection by converting it all to digital. Now is also a very good time. No, it's a great time to become a WrestleCopia patron. You can find us there at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. There are multiple tiers in which you can choose from, but I only ask you guys to give it a try at the $5 all-access tier. And I've been an upload machine over there on Patreon. You got to go check it out. Seven WrestleMania-themed videos leading into the WrestleMania season. Also, some other bonus goodies thrown in as well. Not to mention, as part of that $5 all-access tier, you guys are always promised all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for the Wrestling Memory Grenade Monday Warfare and now Regional Wrestling as well, plus early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. You can listen days and sometimes more than a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. In fact, this episode you're listening to right now, dropping five days early, only on Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. You'll also receive remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality and new content and conversations originally edited out of the show due to time restraints, edited right back in. But that's not all, guys. You'll also receive digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5 a month. 
It's early access, insanely detailed show notes for three of our podcast shows, plus Patreon-exclusive watch-alongs, remastered episodes with brand new content edited in, plus digital downloads, and so much more. All of that for just $5. And remember, no subscription, cancel anytime. Show your support. Give it a try for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you can, if you got a few bucks sitting around in PayPal or whatnot, I'm asking you guys more now than ever to please show your support for all the time, work, and effort I put into all of these shows here at WrestleCopia.com. Help me pay some of the bills to keep all of these shows up and running for the months and the years to come. And now, away we go! Another episode of Regional Wrestling, continuing on our journey through 1986 in Mid-South Wrestling. And at this time, I want to bring back onto the show the former co-host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, now a recurring guest here on Regional Wrestling, Roman Gomez. Welcome back to the show. Roman, are you ready to kick off February 1986 here in the Mid-South Territory? Oh, I am definitely ready. Looking forward to it. So much happened in just the first month of the year, but we continue on here and we kick things off with February news here in Mid-South Wrestling. And it appears that the masked superstar, that's Bill Eady, is out with a minor knee surgery. He'll briefly be replaced here. We talked about this on the last episode by Kelly Kaniski under the hood for the short term. Eady is expected back soon. In fact, very soon. And we'll see that here probably. No, not probably. We definitely will see that here in the month of February. But very distinctive differences here in the body types of Kelly Kaniski and Bill Eady. Though Kaniski apparently a little taller than I remembered. So he pulls it off a little better than I would have imagined. But I suppose if you were just a casual fan, not really looking for these type of things, you probably wouldn't notice the change like me or you would. Yeah, it was it was a big you know break for Kaniski or whatnot. But yeah, I think the smart fan uh, would know that, yeah, that's not Bill Eady. Yeah, it's uh, kind of an interesting story here when we come to the conclusion of these uh, this mask superstar situation for Kelly Kaniski and his career. But we'll touch on that as we move on uh, throughout the weeks and months here in the Mid-South. For now, though, more news. Colonel Buckley Christopher George Robley III, better known as Buck Robley, running an outlaw indie show here in town called Super Pro Wrestling in the Mid-South Louisiana Territory with names like Ted and Jerry Oates, Mike George, Kamala, Mr. Wrestling 2, Skandor Akbar, and more. Some familiar names to the Mid-South fans. Buck Robley clearly found a a money mark here in in town. Yeah, you know, and, and something about Buck Robley that I never knew so I saw this kind of bizarre shoot interview with Jake the Snake Roberts mm-hmm. is that Jake gave Buck a lot of credit for his promo style. He said Buck Robley was the one that told him to slow it down a little bit. You don't think of Buck Robley as being a great promo guy, but he was very instrumental in helping Jake the Snake Roberts do his promos. Yeah, Robley, I, I just heard that recently. I think Jake was talking about that on one of his Snake Pit podcasts. 
Uh, he talked a lot about this period here feuding with Dick Slater, so I might touch on some comments Jake made as we run through the month of February here. But uh, yeah, Buck Robley clearly back in town, not working for Bill Watts. He's not booking at this point for Bill Watts either. So he's running an outlaw show instead with some familiar names, some names that just aren't getting work other places. Mr. Wrestling too at the tail end of his career and things like that. And the fun part is some of these, uh, you can see some of these commercials for these super pro shows on some of the Mid-South shows that I posted on YouTube. So they're, they're pretty fun to see Buck Robley up there promoting himself in action against Skandor Akbar and the like. Yeah, that'd be interesting to check those out. And Buck, he's not the only competition in town for the Cowboy. We saw in January Vince McMahon ran against Bill Watts in Houston. Well, Bill Watts and Paul Bosch in Houston. Well, this month in February, the WWF will do the same thing, only this time in Oklahoma City. How dare they? The WWF will also run Houston again on March the 1st in the Summit, just one day after a Bosch and Watts card at the Sam Houston Coliseum. So Vince McMahon very much making his move into the Mid-South Territory, attempting to gain some ground here. And we'll talk about those Oklahoma City cards in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, and uh, like you said, we'll talk about it. For Vince to go in and try to take over the territory, he wasn't really putting his best foot forward, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, very ballsy move, though. Not just running the town, not just running within the week of Bill Watts, but running the same day in the same city, uh, Mid-South Wrestling. Unbelievable. Well, no, it's Vince. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, Vince, uh, <laughs> he, he wanted global domination, and he was going to do what he could to get it. Our good buddy DeMeltz, that's the Meltzer, that's my pet name for the Meltzer, uh, reports more people watch Mid-South Power Pro in Tulsa, Oklahoma, than they do the NFL. I mean, Tulsa or, or Oklahoma, in general, they didn't have a professional football team, but I don't know, that's some crazy numbers for the Mid-South B show to be doing better than the NFL. That is, but you know, like you said, they didn't have a pro team, so... Maybe uh, Mid-South and UWF was kind of their pro team since they've been in the area for a while. It could be, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with Meltzer here. I know he's the king of facts and figures, but I'd still like to see some proof of that. That's just crazy thinking. Not just Mid-South itself, but, but the Power Pro show on top of that. Very cool stuff, though. And we'll roll on here. So Vince McMahon will do this at the end of 1986, early 1987, but Bill Watts does it here a year earlier taking Dusty Rhodes' bunkhouse stampede idea, the come-as-you-are battle royal, if you will, to close out many of the shows as a lights-out special attraction at the end of the night here. We've seen that for the last couple of months in the Mid-South Territory. I always enjoyed these. Dusty began using the bunkhouse stampede as a touring attraction this time of year, and Bill Watts and even Vince McMahon will follow suit. Well, not only a kind of a tourist attraction type thing, but it was also a great way for Dusty to put himself over. You know, his the he was known to win a lot of those bunkhouse stampedes. He was indeed the bull of the woods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ted DiBiase will be leaving again for Japan by March the 28th. Won't be back until April 25th. It's speculated that he and Dr. Death will lose the tag team title belts sometime before then, likely to the newcomers, the Sheep Herders. Damn dirt sheets spoiling things for me. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, that explains it. But, you know, back then, a lot of people didn't know about The Observer. And just as a casual fan or, you know, you would think like, gosh, Doc and D.B. only held the belts for a couple months. But you look back all these years later and now it makes sense. Yeah, I've told the story before. I didn't know what an Observer was until I went to an indie show and somebody finally came clean and explained to me what it was. And that was not until into the mid 90s almost. So, yeah, this is way before that time. And again, I was just a kid anyway. I had no idea why D.B. was coming and going. And speaking of spoilers here, DiBiase, it's reported he'll leave again in July 
and even once again in November and December for the All Japan Real World Tag League Tournament. So Ted has plenty of commitments with Giant Baba here in All Japan throughout 1986, but Bill Watts clearly flexible with his top stars, trying to keep him happy, I'd imagine. Yeah, and then, of course, it always looked good when they came back. They could promote them as international stars. You know, I always liked when you would see a wrestler wear a jacket that would say New Japan Pro Wrestling or something. It just made them look like that much more of a world star, if you will. Yeah, but DiBiase leaving three to four times a year, you have to figure it has to play with the momentum a little bit. Not that he's not already established specifically in this territory, but what if you want a long-term storyline? You have to kind of write him out. And, and I get it. You know, I don't have anything against it. I love DiBiase's matches over in All Japan, so I'm not complaining that he goes over there. But as a promoter, I would love to, I, I, I guess it goes without saying, I'd love to have DiBiase for, for more dates throughout the year. Oh, no doubt. I mean, DiBiase was an asset and whatever company he was in, you'd always want to have him around. And uh-oh, Roman, big time news alert here. It appears that in the month of February, Jake the Snake Roberts is now WWF bound. Yeah after just beating North American champion Dick Slater for the TV title and pinning NWA world champion Ric Flair last month on TV, Bill Watts going to be out a top babyface here in the promotion very soon. Yeah, that, that's tough to lose somebody like Jake. And uh, to Jake's credit, he was a major star in the WWF, you know, where a lot of guys like Dick Slater would go to the WWF and get kind of lost in the shuffle. I mean, nobody really bought into the, the rebel Dick Slater gimmick, <laughs> well, but they bought yeah, into Jake all right. Vince didn't do Dick Slater any favors with that gimmick and, and making him a baby face up north. Dickie Slater was always a better heel as it was, but yeah, I agree with you. Jake, Jake fit right in. I mean, he was over immediately, maybe not to this level here in the Mid-South right away, but he was a heel, but the crowd knew it was something special when he got in that ring. Like immediately, there was like a hush over the crowd, like, what is this? Just something completely different in the New York territory. Yeah, like I said on one of our previous podcasts, you know, you can't deny greatness. Jake was great, and uh, no matter what side of the fence, he was going to grab your attention. And Roberts just recently did a podcast on this subject, leaving Bill Watts for the WWF. What went down? What caused it in his feud with Dick Slater? And I, I took a few notes on that, so I can't wait as we dive into the rest of February to get into some of the notes from Jake the Snake Roberts there. Uh, it was like perfect timing that he just did it. I, I saw Jake's podcast. I don't necessarily listen to it. And I said, you know, if this is about Jake and Dick Slater, I'm going to listen to it. And it blew my mind, Roman. I clicked on it and it said Jake Roberts versus Dick Slater feud. I'm like, holy shit. Talk about perfect timing. So it all worked out. Really cool stuff there. Awesome. It kind of, uh, I had a kind of a little similar incident yesterday as I was coming home. I was listening to Jim Ross's podcast and he had an episode dedicated to Jake Roberts. And they were talking about the Jake Slater feud. And I'm like, wow, that sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm going to have to go check that out, too, then. I, I love uh, Jim Ross, at least when they're on the topics I want to hear about. And anything old school, is, uh, I'm, I'm in on that. Uh, but we'll continue on with this episode. And even more big news, it just continues here. After seven years in business, the Mid-South Wrestling Territory will undergo a name change to the Universal Wrestling Federation, the UWF, upcoming in the month of March as the Mid-South expands into new territories after holding strong ratings in more than 20 different markets. The Mid-South Wrestling definitely going national, and they got to change the name from that regional Mid-South name to the UWF. And I did appreciate them going national because that meant I was actually able to see them on a regular basis on cable and even see them once in person. They came here to Vegas. 
uh, about 10 days or so before Ronnie Garvin beat Ric Flair for the world title after the merger had happened. It was kind of sad to see him leave the Irish McNeil's Boys Club but when they went national. For selfish reasons, it benefited me. I was able to see him. <laughs> if it works for the fans, you know, it's all that matters sometimes. And, and Bill Watts, he had to do it anyway. They were going national. He had to expand. They were too big to be small and too small to be big. They were in that ECW situation. Exactly. And lastly, here in the news department, new to the territory are the likes of Coco Beware, the Sheep Herders, Luke Williams and Butch Miller, Tracy Smothers, Taurus Balba, that's Juan Reynosa, working the gimmick there, Evil Russian Korstia Korchenko, Dave DJ Peterson, and the Mask Superstar, we'll call him number two here, talking about Kelly Kaniski. Also, Chavo Guerrero going to be in full-time shortly as well after the feud in Houston against the Fabulous Ones concludes here later in the month of February. And we touched on this a couple of episodes ago, but remember in January, they aired a match with Pez Watley, who was slated in here. Well, Pez decides to stick with Jim Crockett, and it's replaced here in Mid-South by Coco Beware. Well, he was Coco Beware, now adding the B. Coco Beware coming to the Mid-South Territory. And, of course, Pez Watley becomes Shaska Watley almost immediately after this. So Crockett or Dusty not wanting to give up any of their talent at this point, giving Pez Watley something to do, uh, giving him a heel character, Shaska Watley feuding with the boogie-woogie man Jimmy Valiant just to keep him in the Kakalakis. And one half of the jive tone, Shaska Watley. <laughs> down the line, down the line. I, I wonder if they had pitched the jive tones up front, if he would have made the jump to Mid-South or not. <laughs> Who knows, but yeah. Shaska was kind of funny in his gimmick, when he, the way he strutted around the ring like that. It was kind of funny. I love Pez. I love Pez's stuff in the ICW for the Pafos. He was always one of our favorites. He's, he's one of our go-to enhancement guys. Let's say my brother, for instance, he didn't really grow up uh, with the territories, he's more the WWF guy and then eventually the NWA WCW guy. And he knew Pez Watley as, you know, the, the enhancement guy, Pez Watley. But he was a really good worker, and my brother knew that. So whenever we ever talk about, like, say, 1990 WWF, he'll always reference Pez Watley. Uh, just somebody that always stuck out. He wasn't the tallest guy, but he was a fun little worker and just, just really fun to have on your TV screen. And like you said, he joins the Jive Tones with Tiger Conway Jr., and he just he takes it in and works with it yeah he, he did the best with what he had you know you got to give him credit for that yeah they were on that c team not that they even had a c team with that gimmick but he did the best with it anyway and we talked about this just a little bit ago vince mcmahon coming to town in oklahoma city of all places the hometown of Cotwell, tulsa oklahoma city but vince mcmahon coming into okc here and he's going to run head to head against mid-south wrestling on february the 11th the wwf coming to town let's first look at what Bill Watts had in store here in OKC at the Myriad. It was actually a TV taping on February the 11th. Just some of the matches on the card. Sheep Herders taking on the Bruise Brothers. Rock and Roll Express going to go at it with the Fabulous Ones. What a matchup. Dick Slater and Jake Roberts continue their feud in the ring. Also, we're going to see Jake Roberts take on Terry Taylor in the Battle of the Baby Faces. Also on the card, six-man tag team action. Ted DiBiase, Dr. Death, Jim Duggan doing a job to Dick Murdoch, the masked superstar Kelly Kaniski and Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer there. We also get a Bunkhouse Battle Royal and a bunch more. Again, those were TV tapings. Vince McMahon comes into town the same night at the State Fair Arena, Oklahoma City. This is the card, guys. Pedro Morales over Moondog Spot. Tony Atlas defeating Tiger Chung Lee. Luscious Johnny V going to set aside his manager duds, which aren't really different from his wrestling duds. Johnny V going to get a win here over poor Scott McGee doing the job to Luscious JV. 
Triple main event, though, sees Ricky Steamboat versus Don Morocco continuing their rivalry. Also, tag team champions, the Dream Team, taking on the British Bulldogs and the former Mid-South North American champion, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, coming back to town to take on Rowdy Roddy Piper. Now, for WWF standards, Roman, pretty good triple main event here. But outside of a few names, it really means nothing to the Oklahoma fans. Yeah, it would have been interesting to know the exact starting time of both those shows. Were fans right. able to go to one in the more uh, one in the afternoon, one at night? Did they start at the same time? But uh, as the attendance figures showed, that you know the Mid South one way outdrew the WWF uh, one. Yeah, and good point there. Here's the tell. We're going to look at what both promotions drew here in Oklahoma City. The WWF drawing 1,025 fans. A thousand fans come out. See. Piper and Orndorff, Steamboat Morocco, Bulldogs, and Dream Team. Meanwhile, the UWF TV taping draws nearly 8,000 fans, nearly eight times the WWF here to come out and see the Rock and Rolls versus the Fabs, Jake versus Dick Slater, and all the rest on that card. So this match here between Watts and Vince McMahon won by the Cowboy. He has the loyal fans of the territory to thank for that one. They want their Mid-South wrestling still here in 1986. Yeah, I mean, they outdrew him by a lot. And uh, I remember finally getting the tape of that Rock and Roll Express Fabulous ones, and they didn't show the finish. Right. And that pissed me off. And then I found out <laughs> it was on Japan TV, so I was able to see the whole match. And if anybody was wondering, the Rock and Roll Express did beat the Fabulous ones. And that was like a dream match back in the day. You know, the Fabulous ones for most of their career were baby faces, and it was one of those ones that fans had speculated who would win between the Rock and Roll Express and the Fabulous Ones. Yeah, and this wasn't one of those deals on Mid-South where they show you about two minutes of the match and then we're out of time. They actually show you the first ten minutes of the matchup, so you're really into it at this point. The Rock and Rolls and the Fabs, and then we run out of time, and we don't get the finish, and then I talk to you and you said, oh, I have the finish, I have the whole match. And I, and I looked through some of the World Pro Wrestling shows, and I cannot find it on mine on my end, so I may need to grab that from you as well. I'm curious... I, I, clearly, the Rock and Roll Express win the match, but I've seen half the match. I want to see the rest. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I will send it to you. I ended up splicing the Japanese footage into the end of the American so you can see the whole match. And uh, it was a real good match. You know, it's a shame that they didn't show the whole thing on TV. But, you know, Watts always had that kind of let's, let's have him wanting more. So, you know, he made that be a cliffhanger. And what a dream match just thrown out there. The Rock and Roll Express, one of the top babyface teams of all time, taking on the fabulous ones, also one of the top babyface teams of all time. Of course, they're here in the Mid-South as heels, but two of the top tag teams of this era, of, of the entire 1980s, maybe of all time, Rock and Roll Express and the Fabs, and, and they likely probably have wrestled one another at some point, sometime, somewhere before, or again, I don't know. But here, just to see it, I was really excited for it. And no build-up to it. I mean, they, no, they, could have really hyped, they could have really hyped that thing for a couple weeks and had people glued to their TV set. You know, like, I think they kind of dropped the ball on that one. And we're going to continue on with Mid-South TV here for February 1st. Tape back January 19th, Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion, Tulsa, Oklahoma, unless stated otherwise throughout the show. Last week, we see the replay of Dick Slater and Jake Roberts, the interview and altercation. Dark Journey blinds the snake with some ink, but winds up getting the DDT for her troubles. And then it's off to Joel Watts, and he's having a rough go of it this week. In his intro, he stutters, he stammers. God, he was awful here in this specific introduction. And no retake. Joel Watts, just a one take here, and it was not pretty as we get things going, though. Joel introducing Jake the Snake Roberts in for an interview. 
Jake wearing dark shades to cover his sensitive eyes after being partly blinded by Dark Journey in the ink last week. Jake then pulls off those sunglasses as he squints and blinks. Great selling here. He didn't oversell the blinding, just kind of squinted here and there throughout the promo. But he talks Dick Slater and he tells Slater to either sign up or shut up for the matchup Jake offered last week. Title for title, no DDT, no Dark Journey. Jake says people have asked him if he knew what he was doing to Dark Journey last week. Jake then asks, what do you think? As he snickers and we throw to the ring. We begin a little dueling promos here. Jake up at the announce stage with Joel. And it's Jim Ross in the ring with North American champion Dick Slater for a rebuttal to the snake here. Dick holding everyone accountable for what happened to Dark Journey last week. And as much and as often as Slater has been fined, why does Mid-South do nothing to Jake Roberts after what he did to Journey with the DDT? Slater says if it's his last day on earth, he will rip Jake's heart out and break his neck. Wow, pretty rough comments there from Dick Slater. Slater doesn't care what he has to do or what it costs him. He's the North American champion, and he will give Jake whatever match he wants to get him back in the ring. And then one last time, back to Jake Roberts up there with Joel Watts. Loud DDT chants. As Jake said, it could have been Slater in that DDT. It didn't have to be Dark Journey. He just grabbed the closest thing to him and dropped her. So Jake Roberts saying, put up or shut up. Dick Slater saying, I'll do whatever you want. I just want you back in the ring. And Jake obviously knew that it was Dark Journey he DDT'd. The way he picked her up and had to position her, I mean, she weighs 100 pounds. Right. A lot different than Dick Slater, who was about 240. So Jake knew what he was doing there, but the fans were so strongly behind him, you know, with the DDT chants. And, uh, yeah, Jake had captured the hearts of the fans of the Mid-South. I love the delivery there. Did I know it was Dark Journey? And he does that Jake Roberts snicker like only he can do. What do you think? What a great line. And we will find out in a later promo here on the show. I actually have a soundbite of it. Jake Roberts admitting, yeah, I knew it was Journey, and I really didn't give a shit. <laughs> Jake was great. He was so great, the, the master of psychology, his promos, his body language, everything about Jake, he connected with the fans. And so we head to that matchup. Flash forward January 31st, the Sam Houston Coliseum. North American champion Dick Slater taking on the TV champion Jake the Snake Roberts. No disqualification, DDT, and Dark Journey banned from this matchup, though. Dark Journey also selling the DDT still at this point. Slater jumping the snake and dominates early on, sending Jake outside of the ring and into the ring post, busting him open early in the match. Then back inside, Slater looking for a pile driver on Jake the Snake, and then a Russian leg sweep will secure a near fall on Roberts. Dick then begins to choke Jake with his wrist tape, but Roberts wisely takes the boot off of Slater and cracks him over the head with it. Great spot there. Does it repeatedly. Remember, no disqualification. Everything is legal, except the DDT. Jake Roberts beating Slater down with his own boot, and then Jake calls for the DDT, but he can't do it. Slater, though, counters with a backdrop as Dickie covers and thinks he's won the match, but realizes Jake's foot was on the rope. So the matchup will continue as Jake then takes his own boot off, planning to use it on Slater. But Dickey knocking it out of the snake's hands and the boot down on the mat. Slater bends over to pick it up, but that's the perfect position. Walks right into the DDT. Referee sees it happen, but caught in the moment. One, two, three. Jake the Snake Roberts pins Dick Slater and is announced as the new North American champion. Jake the Snake Roberts picking up the win, 9 minutes and 45 seconds. What a great, fun match. The crowd 
just awesome here. I threw this up on YouTube, watching the referee hand Jake the belt. Jake's battered and beaten, laying there holding the belt with pride. Now we know what's going to happen, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's talk about the matchup first. I love the finish. More just simple, basic uh, psychology. Dick Slater bending over to pick the boot up. Perfect position. Jake sees it right in front of him. I got to do it. DDT! And back then, Jake was a very quick wrestler. You know, his movements were quick. So for him to pounce on him like that, it makes perfect sense. For him to use the DDT makes perfect sense. That was his rival. The DDT was the knockout blow. Why not go for it? Now, don't get excited, guys. And we talked about this at the end of the last episode. But the North American title would later be overturned. And the title held up because Jake used the DDT. The only thing banned from the matchup. The only thing you couldn't do was use the DDT, and Jake uses it to secure the win here. The move he promised he wouldn't use, that's what he used to get the win. Referee caught in the moment, made the count. I don't know if he wasn't supposed to see it or not, but either way, Jake Roberts winning the title, but then it's being rescinded here. Title is held up pending a rematch between Dick Slater and Jake the Snake Roberts later here in the month of February. We talked about it on the last episode, like, Holding up titles, tournaments, like you can do too much of that. And uh, this might have been another case of that. And we still have a UWF title tournament coming up here not too long from now, Roman. Yeah, more (laughs) tournaments. Yippee. (laughs) From here, we're treated to an Al Perez winning video, naturally from Santana. So clearly they have some kind of uh, plans here, holding him in place anyway. Al Perez, uh, Joel Watts spending time to create a music video for Al Perez here. Yeah, I guess I thought they were going to do something with Perez, and uh, like we said, it just never really panned out. But for now, it's back to the January 19th Tulsa tapings. Jim Ross once again in the ring, this time with Al Perez. Al Perez in the ring demonstrating his patented belly-to-back suplex, that bridging German on a tackle dummy here. First time I saw this, it was kind of hokey. Maybe it still is better, it I is. guess. <laughs> okay, I just didn't know if it was just me, but I was like, maybe, you know, I've just, you know, gotten a little more soft in my age and I'm letting it go here, but it still seems a little hokey to me. Al Perez uh, using a tackling dummy to demonstrate his finisher. Al Perez stating that he has done the German suplex to men as big as nearly 400 pounds. Well, he did it to J.R. Hogg not that long ago. He was about 300 pounds. Al Perez explaining how the move works. You see, the force in the landing stuns the man into that position, rendering him unable to kick out. Al Perez going to that great explainer school of the cowboy. Yeah, I, I know they wanted a visual, but yeah, all these years later, the tackling dummy or the CPR dummy, whatever, it just, it just looks bizarre. It looks very weird. You know, I probably saw that. I didn't see that in the first run. I probably saw that for the first time on tape maybe about 25 years ago with a buddy of mine. And, I mean, that was the joke for weeks because we kept watching Mid-South Tapes. It was like Al Perez and that tackling dummy. What the what the hell were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, I know it might not have been fun for an enhancement worker, but I think it would have been better to have an enhancement worker get in the ring with them and have uh, Perez demonstrate the German suplex. That would have made a lot more sense. But, nevertheless, Al Perez in the ring, getting ring time, getting TV time to talk to Jim Ross, explaining his finisher here, when out of nowhere comes the mad dog Buzz Sawyer. And the Mad Dog says he sees two dummies in the ring. Waka waka. Buzz Sawyer laughing at Al Perez wrestling a dummy, as was I. And the Mad Dog dares Al Perez to try that belly-to-back suplex on him. He says he'll sit out and then kick Al's teeth in. Then Buzz goes on to say that Al Perez isn't really from Tampa. He crossed the border from Mexico. 
cheap heat there. I don't really know what that did for the promo here. Al Perez, though, offers to fight Buzz Sawyer right here and right now, but the Mag Dog laughs it off as referee Carl Fergie separates the situation for the time being. You don't think of Buzz Sawyer normally as being comedic, but him saying he saw two dummies in the ring was kind of funny. It was indeed. And no, the character on TV, which is not so different from the real life Buzz Sawyer from my understanding anyway, I don't see that one as being comedic, but I can see Buzz Sawyer being a real asshole at the bar with comments like that. So I, I, I kind of see Buzz doing it, but maybe not on TV, but it was, it was funny for what it was. And they're giving Al Perez something to do here. Duggan's been away and Buzz Sawyer basically calling out Al Perez here. Al Perez accepting that challenge, and uh, we'll see where that goes in the next couple weeks of TV. And it's good to see Perez without uh, Wendell Cooley. I'm glad they didn't bring him along for this ride. That's right. <laughs> Wendell Cooley's been gone, I think, uh, well, since we've started here, thankfully. And he's off, you know, doing things in Memphis and Southeast and things. Good for him, but Al Perez on his own. And, and for the better, we'll have to see what they do with him as the weeks go on here. But for now, we're back to the ring for the Bruise Brothers, Porkchop Cash and Mad Dog Boyd, taking on the team of Broadway Joe Malcolm and J.R. Hogg from Tulsa Tapings. Bruise Brothers with some butt butts to clear the ring early on. Little Iceman Parsons there. But as the match gets going, sloppy ring work, not very good at all. Bill Watts couldn't have been happy with this matchup. Mad Dog Boyd with the big splash on Broadway Joe. Going to give the Bruise Brothers the win in just three minutes' time. But the Bruise Brothers nearing the end of their run here in the Mid-South. Yeah, it was good that this was a short match. And, uh, yeah, the Bruise Brothers, like you said, they had the cool intro and whatnot. But when it came time to in-ring work, uh, this version of the Bruise Brothers just, just didn't click for me. Yeah, this gimmick of the Bruise Brothers, if they hadn't been, you know, wouldn't have been sued, would have worked. You know, the Bushwhackers worked in the WWF, so I could see a gimmick like the Bruise Brothers, again, pending lawsuit with, with the Blues Brothers. I could see it getting over and working in the WWF without really being able to have to wrestle, but Mad Dog Boyd ugh, just doesn't belong anywhere near a ring, and he really hindered the things here. The legs are only so big on a gimmick, especially in the Mid-South Territory. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. As we go on, we get a Houston promo. Peter Burkholz standing by. He's going to talk to the new team in town. It's Luke and Butch, the Sheep Herders. Let's listen. Hit Houston Wrestling with such controversy and such devastating impact. The Sheep Herders have defeated the Bruce Brothers representing the USA. Hello, 1986 is the Sheep Herders invasion, yeah. It's invasion time of Mid-South. It's the invasion time of the USA. It's the time to get down and do it New Zealand style. You know, it's 37 different countries. The New Zealand sheep herders are my troops. 37 different countries with whole championship belts. 37 different countries. The New Zealand flag is flying high over the ring in victory. And now... Now we're in Yankee land. The same thing's going to happen here. Look out, Midwest. Look out, Mid-South. The New Zealand sheep herders are on the rampage. We're starting the invasion. We're taking over. We're taking it back to down under. Down under where men are men. Down under where no American influence. No hamburgers. No soft drinks where men can look each other in the eye and see the toughness. The toughness, that's right. 
All right. So Butch saying they've held titles in 37 different countries and now they're invading the United States. Well, they've been here before, but they're here to take the belts to the land down under. No bloody hamburgers, no soft drinks, mate. Screw the USA. Uh, Was it, in fact, Butch, the original member of the NWO 10 years earlier? He states, we're starting the invasion. We're taking over. As the sheepherders gifted the spot of the anti-Americans here, that evil country of New Zealand, Roman. Yeah, and uh, not actually believing that they were champions in 37 different countries, (laughs) but uh, it sure sounds good. Yeah, it does. And the number will change over and over throughout the course of the next several weeks on TV. But uh, yeah, 37 different countries. That's that's a bit much. They were uh, aiming high with that number. But Luke and Butch are in town. The evil, bloodthirsty sheep herders, not those wacky, crazy bushwhackers in the WWF. I uh, never care for the bushwhackers, but I always enjoy watching the sheep herders. But, you know, the, the, the bushwhacker gimmick might have been kind of like a lifetime achievement award. I mean, they had spilled their blood all over the country for years and years. So for them to go to the WWF and have an easier lifestyle as far as wrestling's concerned and make more money, I mean, God bless them. Yeah, for them, I'm sure it was great. No more gigging your head. Really don't have to take too many bumps. Lots of comedy work. Just having fun. You've basically paid your dues for the last 15 years or more, and now it all paid off. You're getting paid to go around and just make the fans happy. At the end of the day, and, you know, it's like Butch tells the story, Vince, they come into the office and Vince says, I'm going to make you guys baby faces. And Butch stands up and leans over Vince's desk, sticks his face in Vince's face and says, if you can make this face a baby face, mate, you have at it. And Vince McMahon did it. He pulled it off somehow. I was never a Bushwhacker fan, even as a kid. They weren't my cup of tea. But when I look back, you know, the way you just explained it. Yeah, good good for them that that they were after everything they went through, all the blood and guts. They were able to slow it down and just have a little fun out there the last few years of their career and get over huge across the land. Because I tell you what, even the non-wrestling fan, when they came on the TV, maybe they didn't even know they were called the Bushwhackers, but they remembered them. Remember that team that lick each other's heads and blah, blah, blah. So it worked. The gimmick worked. Yeah, and I don't think they would have ever appeared on the sitcom Family Matters when they were (laughs) in Bill Watts' UWF. (laughs) Yeah, whenever, you know, my kids binge watch Family Matters. In fact, they were just doing it yesterday. But whenever that episode comes on, I, I always go, oh, it's the Bushwhackers episode. And then I have to explain to them who Gene LaBelle is because he's like on everything, as if my kids care. <laughs> but anyways, we'll go on with Mid-South here. Terry Taylor in the ring up next, taking on Sean O'Reilly. Typical squash match here. Taylor going to win the match with a five arm in just three minutes time. Then it's off to commercials. More localized promos from Terry Taylor talking his upcoming match with Gustavo Mendoza talking about Gustavo's deadly neckbreaker. I don't know that we've ever seen that, but note to modern wrestlers making every opponent you face look competent makes you look better when you win. Exactly. And I believe it was Arn Anderson that talked about that too. His style of promos, it made no sense to go out and say, Dusty Rhodes, you suck. Dusty Rhodes, you know, because it right. means nothing if he put Dusty Rhodes. So you put him over as a former world champion and this and that. And, and that way, when you beat him, it looks like you beat somebody important. Yeah. And you've heard, you know, I don't know if you have, I'm sure you have, but I've heard uh, so many times in the old shoot interviews when they were the big thing out there 20 years ago and whatever, a lot of the old time, well, they're old time now wrestlers from the seventies uh, and eighties and things. They would talk about l- learning that in their promos early on when they would feud with the older talent, calling them washed up and has and old and fat and slobs. The, the guys would take them aside afterwards and they wouldn't have their feelings hurt. They would explain 
When you make me look bad, what does that make you when you beat me? You have to put me over so that when you win, it means more. And and that's, you know, what Terry Taylor's doing here. He's just going out there to wrestle Gustavo Mendoza. He could have easily said, well, you're a job guy. I'm going to pin you in three minutes. But he doesn't. He says, I've got to look out for this guy's neckbreaker finisher, which we've never even seen. But Terry Taylor talking about avoiding a finisher that may not even exist here in order to put his opponent over. And it's so simple and so smart, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I like Gordon Soley as a commentator. Gordon Soley can make anybody right. look good, you know, and it, oh, yeah. it just makes the competition a little bit more believable if you beat somebody that has a legit chance of beating you. Yeah, just a little bit of credibility is all it takes to make the match mean just a little more. And we'll roll on with the show here. The fabulous one, Stan Lane, Steve Kern, taking on the team of Ricky Gibson and Brett Wayne Sawyer here. The Fabs rocking my wife's leopard panties for this matchup. Total heels here, no doubt. The baby faces keep the Fabs grounded early, but a couple of shortcuts later, and the heels get heat on Brett Wayne. Then it's Kern and Sawyer eventually colliding, and a hot tag back to Ricky Gibson, who comes in a house of fire. As Gibson covers Kern after a big dropkick, Stan Lane breaking it up, and referee Carl Fergie calling for the bell? A disqualification? I wrote WTF? What the? You guys can't believe this. There was never even a warning. Like I said, sometimes Bill Watts's realistic rules hindered things here in the Mid-South. Felt like a cheap finish. I don't understand the DQ to begin with. Was it planned? Did the Fabs not know the rules of the Mid-South and Fergie just had to call the bell anyway? Cheap spot for disqualification. Essentially, for the first time that I can recall in the matchup, one of the heels getting covered, the other heel coming in to break it up, and immediately the referee calling a DQ. Yeah, it was that was definitely interesting. But, you know, just looking at this on paper, that was one of the things I did like about Mid-South and UWF, one of the many things, is that they would have a, a competent match like this, so to speak. You know, like Gibson and Sawyer, mm-hmm. it would be believable if they did beat the Fabulous Ones, even if it was on a DQ. Ricky Gibson has been a great wrestler for many years. Brett Sawyer was seen on national television, you know, so right. this was a good matchup to, to have on paper, and it's actually somewhat believable that Gibson and Sawyer emerged victorious. Yeah, you go in presuming that the Fabs are going to win, but you can't say you wouldn't expect it from a pair like Ricky Gibson and Brett Wayne Sawyer, who have been made to look competent here in the Mid-South Territory. And like you said, Brett, coming off that run on national TV on TBS, along with Brother Buzz. so. Yeah, but just the finish, if if I'm going to get disqualified for coming in and stomping you, what's to stop me from bringing a chair in every time? <laughs> yeah, and if, and if you wanted to establish the Fabulous Ones as heels, maybe you should have warned them like four times. And then after, after the fifth time, DQ them. Then it's like, man, these guys really don't want to follow the rules. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent way to do it. That would have that's an excellent way to have booked this. I would have uh, definitely went that route over this, and it would have been more more of an impact on the fans as well. Like you said, not only looking at like wow, these fabs they really like to cheat, but at least you're you're building a story there rather than this random finish out of nowhere. But the action doesn't end there because post match things break down into a four way melee between the two teams. Brett Sawyer though winds up getting tied in the ropes, and the fabulous ones hit the backbreaker, Stan Lane diving knee drop, that super demolition decapitation type move there off the top rope onto poor Ricky Gibson here. So the Fabs, yes, they get DQ'd. They don't care about the rules here in the Mid-South. And again, destroying one of their opponents with that top rope knee drop over the back or over the knee of Steve Kern. Well, it was good that they did that. That shows that they are working as the heels, you know, to attack them after the bell. Show goes on. More Houston localized promos here. Peter Burkholz 
interviewing the fabulous ones as we see a clip of Kern and Lane painting Chavo Guerrero yellow in Houston from January 31st. We talked about that on the last episode of Regional Wrestling, but we'll have a rematch between the Fabs and the Guerreros upcoming inside a steel cage. That match originally pegged for February 14th. It's actually going to be moved to February 28th, but it's upcoming. Going to blow the feud away. The Fabulous Ones and Chavo and Hector Guerrero inside a steel cage. Winner take all. No doubt the feud will come to a conclusion on that night. That's something I would have loved to have seen in person. Uh, I'm sure there was some crimson flowing too. Yeah, no doubt about it. And the match is out there. We're going to get to that eventually here in the month of February. Can't wait to talk about that. But for now, we're still here. February 1st TV, The Masked Superstar, the Kelly Kaniski version of The Masked Superstar, in the ring slated to take on Steve Dahl, Dick Murdoch out there in the corner of Kelly Kaniski, as the commentator's selling it like it's Bill Eady right now in the ring, though he's clearly not as broad as one Bill Eady. Steve Dahl, though, tossed to the floor, where Murdoch takes the advantage on the outside, then back in the ring, left-handed clothesline by the masked superstar, number two, and the Shinonomaki. Humongous is gone, so now the superstar going back to the Cobra clutch hold, going to pick up the win here in two minutes and 22 seconds. Kaniski looking good out there. I know he's no Bill Eady, but he's playing the part well. He made sure to use the left arm for the clothesline. He scouted his namesake, the masked superstar here, and tried to follow in his footsteps with his uh, wrestling repertoire this week. Yeah, that was good that he did that. You know, like you said, going to the left-handed clothesline before doing the Shinonamaki, and uh, I was glad it was a short match, too. You know, it shows a little dominance on his part by keeping it short. Yeah, you don't want to expose the fact that this isn't the original superstar, Kaniski going out there and having a fun little match. Probably the best Kelly Kaniski's looked in a while, at least in my opinion, and all it took was a mask. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I don't know if he would have got that uh, little bit of a rub if he had uh, not donned the mask. <laughs> so as we move on, we get more localized promos from Doc and DiBiase. They talk their upcoming match with Dick Murdoch and the Superstar. Also, we hear from Dick Murdoch talking about his matchups here against Doc and DiBiase for the tag team titles. And then it's back to the ring to see tag team champions Dr. Death, Steve Williams, Ted DiBiase taking on the team of Gustavo Mendoza and Rob Ricksteiner. That's Rick Steiner for those curious. Jim Ross tries to sell Gustavo as the Cuban assassin here, because we don't have enough of those running around wrestling. Fun from Dr. Death and DiBiase early on when they're in the ring with Rick Steiner, and we see an early Steiner line here on DiBiase, allowing the heels to take over briefly in the matchup. But DiBiase fires off on Gustavo, and it's a double shoulder tackle on poor Mendoza before the Oklahoma stampede by Doc, and then a DiBiase figure four, going to get the win here in four minutes and four seconds. The champions putting an exclamation point on that victory here this week. The double shoulder block, the OK stampede, and the figure four leg lock. Gustavo didn't have a chance. I was going to say, with those series of maneuvers, <laughs> that was definitely the exclamation point, you know, to put Gustavo down. And it's kind of fun to see Rick Steiner in this match. I mean, one, it was early on in his career. And then, two, you factor in a couple years later, him and Dr. Death would be part of an outfit known as the Varsity Club. That is true. And you know what's really fun about this, too, is Rick Steiner from the get-go, from the jump, even though he was enhancement when he came into the Mid-South, you could tell he had something special. He had those those background credentials, and it really translated over well, as everyone knows for him here in the world of professional wrestling. And it was so fun watching him get in there with Doc and DiBiase. And I think that's why he was treated so well by the veterans was because he had it. And they saw that he had it, so they worked with him here. I'm not saying they, they let him off the hook. They certainly laid it in right back, but that they worked with Rick Steiner to help him mold himself into what he would become. 
Yes, and uh, you know, just on a little side note, I was curious, Ray. Do you, are you a little surprised that they didn't try to go a different route with Steiner, the babyface route, considering they acknowledge that him and Doc saved somebody from a burning car? Oh, that's that's a good point. I'd already forgotten all about that. And that wasn't too long ago, and here they are fighting against one another, Dr. Death and Rick Steiner here tonight. That's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that going into this. And yeah, you know, knowing Bill Watts, that just seemed like, you know, the authentic thing to do. And especially Rick Steiner, you know, he got over huge when he left the varsity club in Jim Crockett promotions, and I could have seen him doing that here. A little too early for a giant push in his career here at the beginning of eighty six, but yeah, I could have seen that that grooming of Rick Steiner going babyface, and the crowd would have really got behind him because he had a hell of an arsenal of moves behind him. Yeah, he did. He looked really good. And like you said, you can tell early on he had something where like, you could see him down the road becoming a big name. And as Doc and DiBiase celebrate in the ring after the matchup, they're confronted by the fabulous ones. Stan Lane and Steve Kern return to the ring, going to confront the tag team champions here. Stan Lane says that, Everyone knows they're the greatest tag team in the world, they being the fabulous ones, pal. Everyone has copied them from the fantastic ones, can't believe they mentioned that, to the fantastics, to the fabulous Freebirds. And now Dr. Death has stolen their stampede move that they patented in New York City. I wrote, interesting. What a random line here from Stan Lane. Yeah, exactly. No, nobody thinks the fabulous ones in New York City. They don't go together. So very bizarre line there. Yeah, the whole thing is confusing to me. I, I love the name drops of the other tag teams, and I didn't even catch the fabulous Freebirds until just now. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it now. But they talk about Dr. Death stealing the Oklahoma Stampede from them, and I just I don't understand this entire promo. They patented it in New York. Really random lines here from Stan Lane, but, but the promo goes on. Steve Kern publicly issues a challenge to the tag team champions, and DiBiase accepts but then warns the fabulous ones that they might get kissed by all the male fan base on the way they're dressed out here. So DiBiase having a little fun. We've talked about it last episode. Uh, some of the uh, gear that the fabulous ones would wear to the ring and even take pictures in. The fabulous ones, though, tease wanting at the champions right now, but eventually bail out of the ring when Doc and DiBiase are ready to throw down. And the fabs stand at ringside as DiBiase blows his nose and wipes the sweat off his body on Stan Lane's shirt. Basically, destroying that shirt, Stan Lane doesn't care. Like you said, they get into limos with no shirts on anyway. Yeah, this promo was bizarre, and it's kind of comical that he mentioned the fantastic ones. For those yeah. of you that don't know, that was Terry Taylor and Bobby Fulton in the uh, Georgia area, some, uh, Chattanooga, right. rather. And uh, just very bizarre to mention them. Most people have never even heard of them, and I never knew they teamed till years and years later in my tape trading days. So. Why he would mention them was bizarre, the New York thing. But on another note, it's a shame that we really didn't get to see something with the Fabulous Ones and Doc and DiBiase. I think they could have had a really good series. Yeah, I agree. And, I, you know, I'm the same way. I didn't see the Fantastic Ones until the tape trading days either. Uh, you know, in the late 90s, probably, is the first time I ever heard television or, or saw it myself. But I have to think it, it clearly it's stuck in the craw of the fabs anyway, that they would uh, reference the fantastic ones here. And then when they go down the list of names that tried to copy their name or their style. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it's a shame we didn't get to see more because uh, just seeing the four of them together and trading insults and whatnot, it, right. it made you think as a fan, what could have been. 
Yeah, it's kind of odd. I'm sure DiBiase and Doc knew the Fabs were coming out here, but it, like you said, it just the whole promo back and forth seemed a little odd. It was just really not planned for the most part. But I agree, you know, nothing really comes of this, and that's unfortunate because I would have loved to have seen how Doc and DiBiase would have worked with Stan Lane and Steve Kern. They're smaller than Dr. Death, obviously, and Stan Lane, anyway, not the worker of a Ted DiBiase. Steve Kern could go when he wanted to, obviously. But they were pretty damn good heels here for this short period of time they were here in Mid-South. And it's just like you said, unfortunate we didn't get to see at least one match between the two teams. I would love to have seen how they worked the, the, the match of how they told the story. Well, the fabulous ones have spent most of their career wrestling against heels, so they definitely knew what worked. So, right. you know, them as heels, I know they could have got a great match out of Doc and DiBiase and vice versa. There's no doubt they, those four would have clicked together. Oh, I have no doubt. With that many top-of-the-line workers in there, the match was going to be good. It's just I'm just curious how the story would have been told out there. But nevertheless, we end the show here teasing a fight between DiBiase, Doc, and the Fabulous Ones, teasing a match that, as we just said, will never come to fruition, unfortunately. And then we close out the show with a Hacksaw Duggan music video. We see American flags, pickup trucks, and kicking ass, tough guy. Another music video. What better way to... Try to get somebody over, then do a music video. Joel Watts probably just sat around getting stoned, creating music videos every night of the week. <laughs> Bill or Joel? Joel, Joel. Joel, yeah. Yeah, Joel Watts loved him, and uh, I, I don't know what kind of pay he got for it, but man, they sure got their mileage out of Terry Taylor's freeze frame. Good heavens. What kind of pay? I'm sure the luxury of being on Mid-South Wrestling, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, sure. that was probably his only pay. I'm sure he worked cheap, and he didn't really have a, an option. Yeah, it was probably either that or get uh, kicked out of the house, one of the two. <laughs> we roll on February 2nd, Power Pro Wrestling, Jim Ross hosting the show. Again, we get that weekly recap of everything going on. Well done on the goings-on here in Mid-South Wrestling. And right away, we just talked about it, another music video. This time, Coco Beware in Morris Day in the Times, The Bird. So the Birdman, Coco Beware, a lot of people think that the gimmick started in the WWF, and Frankie, the, the macaw, did start with Vince McMahon, but the name the Birdman, because he soared so high, that was all the way back here, even in Mid-South. And that was an electric video. That one really got people pumped up. When they played that music and he went to the ring, people were really pumped up about it. You know, that's another thing. A lot of the guys that came out, maybe a few of them slapped hands, but they got in the ring and they were ready to go. Clearly, Coco was told, get out there and get over. He would go out there and flap his arms and dance with the fans for a, a couple of minutes before he'd ever get in the ring. Really got along with the fans there, did Coco beware during his entrances each and every week. Yeah, there was definitely a connection between him and the fans, and part of it probably was that music. You know, the music put people in a good, happy mood. And again, I'm sure no royalties were paid for that one. Yeah, yeah, just like we talked about last episode. Yeah. It's amazing what they were able to get away with back then. <laughs> and he'll continue to use that through 1987 in the WWF until uh, they get to the Pile Driver album anyway. So it's just interesting that Coco got to use that uh, song for so long, all throughout 86 here in Mid-South and then over to the WWF as well. As we go on into a commercial break, localized promos for the UNO Lakefront Arena, February 15th. We're going to hear from Dick Slater and Jake Roberts they're talking about the held-up North American title. From Mr. Unpredictable. It's a game of chance. And it's not a good chance. And there's no rules to this game that you're playing with Dick Slater. I gotta put up with your games just like everybody else. Now, Dark Journey was close to me. Way too close for you to drop her in a DDT. Now... 
the North American Heavyweight Championship title is on the line against you. Well, I've lost one chance, and I don't want to lose another one. Get it ready, Jake. Remember now, if Dark Journey comes to ringside, she's going to be searched, and the DDT will be legal. Here is the man with the DDT. Every man that steps into the squared circle better have an ace in the hole. Whether it be the DDT for me, or whether it be Dark Journey for Dick Slater. See, she was his ace in the hole. She was always there when he needed her. A lot of people have asked me, did you know it was her? <laughs> Would I lie to you, my man, if I told you no? Of course I did. I knew it was her, but she put herself in the place. And now, Slater, you don't have her standing by your side. As good as she was, she won't be there for you now. And you know what that means to me, Slater? You got one less ace, my man. I got four. You got three. The title's coming. And that's, that's where it was, Roman. Right there, you heard it. Jake Roberts saying, did I know it was Dark Journey? Of course I did. So Jake Roberts finally admitting he meant to DDT Dark Journey. We kind of knew it all along. Jake will actually win the North American title in Houston the day before this promo airs. So they're selling it like they're coming to the Lakefront Arena on the 15th to settle that uh, held up North American title. But really, Jake's going to walk in champion. He had won it the day before in Houston. Anybody that's seen Jake over the years knew he had a sinister personality, that sneaky smile. So, you know, for him to say he knew it was Dark Journey, not really a surprise if he had followed Jake's career up to that point. Right. Show goes on with a throwback match, June 30th, 1985, Oklahoma City. We're going to see the Rock and Roll Express take on the Midnight Express. Wow. Rock and Rolls will be back in town for a couple of weeks here, so I guess that's why we get this match on TV, and I'm not really going to argue it. Rock and Rolls and Midnight's anytime. And we get a good 10 minutes shown here with Ricky Morton finally pinning beautiful Bobby Eaton with a sunset flip out of nowhere. Fun little random match on Power Pro. You never knew what you were going to get on Power Pro. This week, it's the Rock and Rolls and the Midnight's. Yeah, it was it was interesting, but you know how how can you get mad? You know, two of the greatest tag teams of all time, and they're showing it to you on free TV in a flashback match. It's it's hard to get mad about seeing two great teams like that. Yeah, and the Rock and Rolls are coming back in the town, and Midnight's will even be here as we get to the Crockett Cup time frame. So it does make sense. But even if you have no idea any of that's going on, you're probably sitting there going, "Why is this? Who cares? I can't wait to watch this." So that's at least that's how I thought going into this one. Yeah, and if you're new to Mid-South, you might be wondering, like, who are the Midnight Express if you just got cable? So it might not have made sense to you, but like you said, the Rock and Roll Express were coming in, so they just wanted to showcase them a little bit. Right, and more action here on Power Pro as we head down to Puerto Rico from the World Wrestling Council. We're going to see the Sheep Herders, or Los Pastores, as they were down there. Their manager down there, Hugo Savinovich, rocking some fatigues. Very funny to see Hugo out here in fatigues as he sponsors his team, the Pastores, or the Sheep Herders, if you will. Luke and Butch taking on Jorge Clemente and Hurricane Castillo. As Joel Watts commentates over the Spanish commentary, we're going to see Luke Williams get the win here over Clemente with a top rope forearm drop. Sheep Herders picking up the win in about five minutes. Jim Ross says they've been champions in 28 countries, so they've lost nine countries since that Sheep Herders promo we heard just a day before, Roman. Uh, that's nine less, but Butch... Says 37, Jim Ross says 28, maybe somewhere in between, maybe maybe a lot less than that. Who knows? Yeah, they were champions. Who knows how many countries? But uh, just hearing the name Hugo Savinovich, I can't help but think, somehow he ended up with Wendy Richter. 
That's, yeah. that's always the first thing I think of when I hear the name Hugo Savinovich. You know, somewhere around the early 90s, I had found out that he was with Wendy Richter reading a magazine or something. And I was like, are you shitting me? How? I just don't see it. <laughs> they say love is blind. Well, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. Power Pro continues on another throwback match from Houston. It's Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeating Iron Mike Sharp with a spear in seven and a half minutes. Kind of a random match there. Duggan over Iron Mike here today on Power Pro. And more action back in time to the Irish McNeil Boys Club. Also on the show, Terry Taylor taking on Barry O. Barry Orton, brother of Cowboy Bob. Boyd Pierce on commentary for this matchup. Ring announcer Murray Franks for those keeping score here. And it's the five arm of Terry Taylor scoring the win over Barry O in about four minutes. And we close out this episode of Power Pro with what else? But the when the going gets tough, the tough get going music video. Terry Taylor once again uh, highlighted in music video form here. Joe Watts, just another classic. Duggan, Taylor, Coco Beware in a matter of a couple weeks. Yeah, lots of music videos. And Barry O, the local guy. You know, I remember going to the matches here and he was an enhancement talent for the WWF and the right. crowd popped for him because they knew, they knew he had Vegas connections. Yeah, the fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada was Barry O. Exactly. <laughs> so talking about music videos here for a second, I have to wonder just for a moment, what, what would a sheep herder music video have looked like? Just total annihilation, total de- destruction? Yeah, you, you couldn't have a sheep herder music video without showing the barbed wire and the blood. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what the song would be, but if I gave <laughs> it a little thought, I'm sure I could come up with something. But yeah, you could definitely do a good uh, music video to the sheep herders that might not be suitable for young audiences, <laughs> but you show some matches with them with the crimson flowing. Uh, I think that would be a good, good idea. Be a good way to get them over. That's for sure. Oh, without a doubt. We'll roll on to the following week, February 8th, Mid-South TV tape back this time, February 2nd. So we're at a new set of tapings here at the Tulsa Fairgrounds Pavilion. Joel Watts and Jim Ross on commentary as we see a brand new red, white, and blue ring mat in the ring. Jim Ross standing by interviewing Sir Oliver Humperdinck inside the ring. Oliver says he has lost a lot of good men due to injuries and whatnot. And so along with hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert ringside, Humperdinck introduces his newest find, from Outer Mongolia, which is far more dangerous than Inner Mongolia, it's Taurus Bulba, Juan Reynosa. Humperdinck asking Jim Ross to stand ringside with him for this upcoming matchup so that he can get Ross's opinion on Bulba after the match. What did you? What was your first impressions of the Taurus Bulba character? It's hard to get excited about it, you know, when that's supposed to be one of your go-to guys in your stable. It was just like, that's the best you can do, Taurus Bulba? Yeah, I just really couldn't get into it, and uh, sadly, I had been groomed to buy into the bigger guys in the ring. But Jake was tall, but he wasn't necessarily big. But I bought into guys like Jake. Hell, I brought I bought into Terry Taylor, so it wasn't just about the size. But I think it was about Bulba being portrayed as a monster, and that really not you know coinciding with the size, the height of Torres Bulba here. I just couldn't buy into him being the big monster they were wanting him to portray. Now that said, we get a matchup here with Bulba. Humperdinck and Gilbert ringside, even Jim Ross standing out there to watch this for very good reason. Bulba taking on Perry Jackson here. And as I mentioned, Torres Bulba, a short but broad man, very stocky in build. But Perry Jackson bumps like a champion for him here as we see the always dangerous kneeling pile driver. That's setting the guy up for the normal pile driver, but falling forward on your knees like it was going to be a tombstone. I wrote, oof, always a dangerous move there. But Bulba going to pick up the win with it in a minute and 15 seconds. And then 
Post-match, we get another promo. Jim Ross back in the ring with Humperdinck, Eddie Gilbert, Taurus Balba. And here it comes, guys. Humperdinck says that, first of all, Balba is here to take out people like Hacksaw Duggan and Jake the Snake Roberts. And second of all, Eddie Gilbert then snatches the mic from him and says, second of all, is this. As Taurus Balba clotheslines Oliver Humperdinck and then lands a much safer looking kneeling pile driver here to Humpy. As Gilbert grabs the mic and says he waited one whole year, one whole year, Eddie Gilbert waited for revenge. He was dumped by the nightmare for Oliver Humperdinck a year ago. He waited an entire year, Roman, and his dad told him, you don't get mad, you get even. As the crowd pops for Oliver Humperdinck getting his comeuppance, but Eddie Gilbert, make no mistake, no babyface after this. And this marks the end of Oliver Humperdinck in the Mid-South Territory Eddie Gilbert now replacing him in the managerial role. And clearly this wasn't the plan last summer or whatever it was when the nightmare turned on Gilbert. And of course, Gilbert eventually joining the stable anyway. But I love the continuity here. I remember I I, I only joined your stable so that I could eventually get revenge when the time was right. And here it is, Eddie Gilbert, the opportunist taking over the stable of Oliver Hubbarding. It took a year, but Gilbert finally got his revenge. And uh, no disrespect whatsoever towards Sir Oliver Humperdinck, but at that point in my fandom, I would have rather seen Gilbert than Humperdinck. You know, Gilbert could act as a manager. He was still a good worker. And the only thing Gilbert didn't have was size. You know, other than size, that was the one thing he was lacking. A great mind for the business, a great talent. And pushing Gilbert more than pushing Humperdinck, I think, was a step in the right direction at that time. You know, I think time just passed Humperdinck by. If you go back and watch his Florida stuff, and maybe he just worked in Florida. Maybe his gimmick, his, his spiel only worked in Florida. I don't know. But he was a tremendous heel manager down there, even when that little angle where he turns babyface for a little bit there. I, I, I enjoy watching Humperdinck in Florida, but everything else he does, it just doesn't do anything for me. He, he really just stood there for me in Mid-South here. Of course, he'll go on to do the, the babyface gimmick in the WWF. He'll be the big kahuna. He'll be big daddy dink. And and a lot of that is just bad gimmicks too. But he just never did anything for me after his longtime Florida run. Yeah, Florida is where he was at his best, in my opinion. And uh, we forgot to talk about real briefly. I mean, he managed Bigelow in the WWF. And that that went nowhere with him. You know, there's a reason to have a manager. And it's not not to manage a baby face. Yeah, and then, you know, Dusty threw him a bone even later in his career, early 90s, doing the Big Daddy Dink gimmick, which I don't even know what that was about. Just the roadman, Big Daddy Dink. DDP was already doing the managing of the Freebirds, and then they had, like, the secondary manager there as well. I don't know what that was about other than Dusty trying to help a friend out. But like I said, a lot of bad gimmicks after this here, too. But, I mean, he was just Oliver Humperdinck here in the Mid-South, and it just never clicked for me. It just kind of was there. No, and then uh, Gilbert would go on to do lots of uh, good things with Hyatt and Hot Stuff International that, We'll talk in later episodes, but yeah, it was a kind of a changing of the guard there. So Oliver Humperdinck out of the company. We head into a commercial break, then back from break. Jim Ross still in the ring. This time going to interview Dick Slater and Dark Journey, who's now in a neck brace. As Ross wants to interview Journey about being DDT'd by Jake the Snake, but Slater speaks instead. Slater says he will get the TV title from around Jake Roberts' neck. Remember, not the waist. Remember, it's a medallion, guys. He's going to get that TV title. He will also get back the held-up North American title, and Jake will pay for DDTing Journey. Then from there, Dick Slater in the ring, going to take on Ricky Gibson. Dark Journey going to remain ringside. Remember, she's got that neck brace on. 
And it's a fun match on the mat, Roman, if you're into that type of thing. And I thoroughly enjoyed it here. Dick Slater and Ricky Gibson having a little showcase on the mat. Slater, though, with a gunt-rich suit play. Uh-uh, brother. But it's Gibson countering a pile driver with a backdrop. Gibson making the comeback, but telegraphs a backdrop this time. And Dick Slater lands the Gord Buster. Got to pick up the win here in 4 minutes and 36 seconds. So Dick Slater vowing revenge on Jake Roberts. He wants the TV title. He's going to take back the North American title. He's going to make Jake pay for Dark Journey. Then he has this fun little match here with Ricky Gibson. And to me, that makes absolutely perfect sense to have Dark Journey come out with a neck brace. Well, yeah, you absolutely. Have a you have a 240-pound wrestler like Jake who beats opponents with the DDT, and he puts a DDT on a woman with no wrestling training that weighs 100 pounds. You should be able to see some kind of physical damage. So outside of interviewing her in a hospital bed, you know, the neck brace was a, a good visual to see the damage he did to her. And then you follow it up with the match, Dick Slater, Ricky Gibson, two solid veterans. They should put on a good match, and they did. And the show rolls on. Last week, we heard it, a special challenge laid out. A special challenge match here scheduled between Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer and Al Perez. But it's reported that Perez has airline problems. But it's a driving territory, pal. I don't really get that. But airline problems by Al Perez here tonight. So instead... With Buzz Sawyer standing in the ring awaiting opponent, Hacksaw Jim Duggan makes his return to the Mid-South Wrestling Territory for the first time in 1986 TV. Hacksaw is back and Buzz Sawyer immediately bails, leaving ringside as Jim Ross still standing there interviewing Hacksaw. Lots of Jim Ross interviews again this week. Jim Ross interviewing Hacksaw Duggan on his return to the Mid-South. Duggan says he has been in Japan, but he heard Buzz Sawyer saying that he ran Duggan off but nobody runs Hacksaw out of his home, the Mid-South Territory. Hacksaw, Jim Duggan back. Tough guy. Nice to see Hacksaw return, but kind of weird that they would do that with Perez. You know, they spent the time building him up with the suplex on the dummy and Buzz Sawyer coming out. They make you think you're going to see those two, and then they say Perez couldn't make it. It's just very bizarre. You know, it would to me, it would have been better off if it was Sawyer versus enhancement talent and then have Duggan come out, but Duggan come out to the big pop and everything, put, you know, really the fans behind him. It was really a cool thing to see. Yeah, and airline problems really threw me off because he's been working the house shows around here. So I'm thinking he didn't take a flight out of town. They could have just said transportation problems here, but they blame it on the airlines like they did with the fabulous ones in Houston as well. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming episode of Regional Wrestling. But it's just uh, really odd to me. Al Perez, like you said, they build up the story, but this is a different TV taping now, and maybe truly he couldn't make the show. I don't know if this was done specifically to get Hacksaw Jim Duggan out there for his big return, or if Al Perez truly didn't make the show because he was nowhere to be seen on this entire TV taping. Nevertheless, Hacksaw Jim Duggan is back, and he's back for Buzz Sawyer. They immediately throw him right back out there to remind us of their feud with one another, and we're right back into it. Yeah, and... uh the thought of seeing Sawyer and Duggan mix it up in the ring, two roughhouse tough guys. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of excitement coming, you know, because of this show rolls on. We get another buzz Sawyer pre-tape promo this time. Buzz now inexplicably bleeding and bandaged. So he's coming out of a match somewhere. He says that Al Perez may have no showed, but buzz has been waiting for that two by four man hacksaw, Jim Duggan. He's been beating himself in the head with his dog chain. Sawyer then tells Hacksaw to beat him with the 2x4, and it'll just make Buzz that much more stronger when he wipes Duggan out for good. 
And then from there, we get another Hacksaw promo as well. He says he's back for revenge. So they continue to build here. The Duggan and Buzz Sawyer thing. It's been away for a few weeks here on TV, and they're making it more prominent now, bringing it right back to the forefront. We're going to see Buzz taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan once again on the house shows. And make no mistake about it, they're, they're implementing weapons into this here, talking about boards, steel chains. You can expect a lot more matches coming, bloody matches coming from these two. Buzz bleeding because he said he hit himself in the head with a chain. You don't even question it. No. You know, you're just like, yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah, we walk into the promo and Buzz is bleeding already. And I'm like, why? But then he explains it. The great explainer, Buzz Sawyer. I was I was standing here beating myself in the head with a chain. Oh, okay. You just shrug it off because it's Buzz Sawyer. Oh, okay. That, yeah, I get it. <laughs> exactly. If it, if it had been uh, somebody else, you would have been like, oh, come on, Buzz. Like, yeah. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, if it had been anyone else, I would have been like, bullshit. But since it was Buzz Sawyer, I'm just, I'm just going with the flow. And he definitely knows how to swing the chain. If you ever <laughs> saw that Breakfast with the Mad Dog video from Georgia, yeah. he was yeah. feeding the cinder block with the chain. Yeah, it's like a karate chop with a chain. What a dangerous <laughs> character. <laughs> I just he, have to I'm laugh when you, I think about Buzz Sawyer sometimes. I'm sorry. He is, to me, like such a perfect candidate for Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah, I mean, talk about a main event episode. Holy cow. But Yeah, the- I, I would love to see that. <laughs> Show goes on. Birdman Coco Beware taking on Broadway Joe Malcolm here. The Birdman has arrived out to Morris Day's The Bird. Coco Beware, been there before with Norvell Austin and the PYTs here in the Mid-South Territory, but he's back here as a babyface in singles action. Ware showing off his speed and agility here. Malcolm whipping Beware into the corner but he climbs to the middle rope and drop kick off the middle rope from where where landing on his feet, making the cover, getting the win in just two minutes and 43 seconds. Birdman looking good. Unfortunately, he can't come off the top rope here in mid South, but lands that drop kick just as beautiful off the middle rope. Coco was in a lot better shape here than he would be in the Federation years later. Right. And he could move and he definitely had one of the better drop kicks at that time. You know, and I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was the lack of push. I don't know if it was the age. You know, I don't know if it was the wear and tear on the road. And Coco does eventually begin to descend uh, in his uh, athleticism to a degree while with the WWF. But when he first gets there, 86 and even into 87, I've been watching a lot of 87. When Coco's in there with the right guy, he still has it. He's still going. He can still move. He's still got that speed. And it's it's definitely proven here in his Mid-South run. Really fun watching the Birdman out here in these squashes. No doubt about it. Yeah, he was a lot of fun to watch, watch back then. So Coco, not the only one to arrive here at the February 2nd tapings. We also get our first look at Luke and Butch, the Sheep Herders, taking on the team of Steve Dahl and Brett Wayne Sawyer. And they bring out the big New Zealand flag and salute the New Zealand flag right before the matchup. And they pick Steve Dahl apart before landing the double gut buster, scoring the win in just a minute and 45 seconds making sure that Brett Wayne Sawyer never tags in or even comes close to attempting to make a tag here. The Sheepherders cutting the ring in half and taking advantage of that rookie, Steve Dahl, and securing the win with relative ease. And that makes perfect sense. You know, like we alluded to, Brett Wayne Sawyer was a little more established, former national heavyweight champion. So you pick on the rookie. And this was a time... Back then, where if you brought a flag out and it was not an American flag, you were immediately going to get booed. So for them to come out with the New Zealand flag was a great way for them to get extra heat. Right. As the show rolls on, we'll hear from the Sheep Herders. We get a Sheep Herders promo here after the matchup, talking about destroying everyone in the Mid-South, mate. 
And then it's back to the ring for the television champion, Jake the Snake Roberts, taking on Gustavo Mendoza here. And this TV medallion so hokey for 1986, but the title is in fact on the line for this matchup, apparently. And Jake the Snake Roberts tries for the DDT early on, but Mendoza drops to his knees and slides out of the ring. Mendoza escaping the DDT. Wow. But Jake Roberts right back at it, delivering the knee lift, then going for the DDT a second time. But this time, Gustavo grabbing the ropes to block the hold. Wow. Action continues, though. As Jim Ross says, even though you can hit the DDT out of nowhere, Jake is pretty blatant in telegraphing the move when he signals it to the crowd. So Jim Ross making a little excuse there why Mendoza has been able to escape the move the first two times around. As the match continues on, it's back and forth, making Gustavo look really competent here in this matchup. But Mendoza leapfrogs over a Jake the Snake backdrop attempt. Mendoza turns around, but right into the DDT. And Jake Roberts picking up the win here in a really fun TV match, six minutes and 13 seconds. Yeah, and like, like you said, with the TV title uh, necklace, supposedly the theory was that they did that originally because of the 84 Olympics. They, they wanted to capitalize on that. But this is 1986. It's time to get the TV champion a belt. But this was a fun match to watch TV-wise. Mendoza making it look confident, you know, very good enhancement worker. And uh, eventually Jake got him with the DDT. Yeah, you know, Jake's been planning guys left and right with the DDT. So honestly, going into this, even for Mendoza, I assume this was one of those two-minute squashes. We're going to get a little back and forth. I'm just going to go right into the DDT. And this match just kept going. They've surprised me more than once here on Mid-South TV in 86. Matches I expect to go two, three, four minutes are going six, seven minutes. And I really like this here. I love the, the whole thing with Mendoza blocking the DDT, grabbing the ropes to escape the DDT, doing whatever he could to escape it. But at the end of the day, he winds up DDT out of nowhere. Jake Roberts scoring the win. And uh, you, you can run, but you can't hide, Gustavo Mendoza. Yeah, and, you know, Jake has talked about in, in interviews that the DDT is kind of like taking people on an emotional roller coaster, you know, that he had talked when he wrestled the Honky Tonk Man that he would try to put the DDT on early and Honky would flip out of it. And it would just take the, cry, the crowd on that ride like, oh, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? So when he finally does do the DDT, the explosion, the energy from the crowd, everything is even magnified more because they waited a little bit longer to see the DDT. And we're going to close out this edition of Mid-South Wrestling. A couple of sound bites here, a couple of promos from Jake Roberts and Dick Slater. They're going to be going back at it for the held-up North American title. First, we're going to hear from the former North American champion. Here's a soundbite of Dick Slater. First of all, right back in the notice qualification match with a stipulation that Dark Journey is out with me, she's got to be searched. Well, you've already DDT'd her, and you told everybody that you wouldn't use a DDT against Dick Slater, and that's the reason why I have got the title held up by law. There's laws in this land, Jake Roberts, and you ought to try to learn about them. When you say one thing and do another, well, it doesn't go my way, Jake Roberts, but now, no disqualification. The title's been held up. The DDT's legal. Well, see, Jake Roberts, I know now where to look for the DDT. I didn't before because you said you weren't going to use it. But now, Jake Roberts, I've got my keen sense about your DDT, and you stay away from Journey, and me and you will settle this thing once and for all. All right, and Dickie talking Jake Roberts using the DDT, cheating, essentially, to win the title back on January 31st in Houston. Then the belt becomes held up because of Jake breaking the agreement. So Slater says he only lost because he wasn't looking 
for the DDT Roman, but next time, he'll be ready for it. And if Dark Journey comes to ringside, she will be checked by officials. So Dark Journey could be at ringside again. We're going to find out there's a whole lot more to that. But Dick Slater, using the uh, old uh, heel excuse, I only lost the match in the first place because I wasn't even looking for the DDT because you weren't supposed to be using the DDT. Well, Slater should have known better than that. He should know not to trust Jake. (laughs) There you go. There's that word, trust, and Jake the Snake Roberts. Good point. Is Dick Slater the first one not to trust the snake man and pay for it? It bit him in the end, pun intended. We'll go on. Another promo here queued up. Here it is from the other end. It's TV champion Jake the Snake Roberts. I have never liked lawyers. You spent your money on just like my ex-wife spent money on them. That's when I started disliking them because they cost me something. Because you're not man enough to stand face to face and say, I can take it from you. You got to go get some man with a nice little three-piece suit that spent his time in college. It's had the easy way out. And now you're taking the easy way out, Slater. Oh, yeah, you're right. I did say I wouldn't use the DDT if Journey wasn't there. She wasn't. And I did. So maybe I stand to be corrected. But not by a lawyer. Why don't you stand up and do it? The stipulation is this. When you look through all the bureaucratic crap, the stipulation is this. If she shows up at ringside, she's to be searched. I will use the DDT. And as far as last time goes, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, Now, Snake, did you know it was her? Of course I did. And I'll do it again, Slater. Anything for the North American title. All right. And the Snake talking, Dick Slater paying off lawyers to strip him of the North American title, just like his ex-wife paid the lawyers to take him to the cleaners. Jake Roberts clearly not happy with his divorce here. But Jake says he doesn't like attorneys. Jake admitting he broke the rules of the match. But it shouldn't have been a lawyer to make the decision. Slater should have been man enough to confront Jake himself. Roberts then reiterates that if Journey shows up, she will be searched. Jake again reiterates, did he know that it was Dark Journey he DDT'd? Of course he did. And he'll do it again, whatever it takes. Jake Roberts getting so fucking over with the crowd and so over with me, Roman. It's a shame that he gets taken out uh, at this exact moment from the Mid-South Territory but Vince clearly knew what he was getting. Oh, no doubt. And you can't blame Jake for leaving, you know, to get more money and everything. But as a fan, it would have been awesome to see Jake stick around a little bit longer in the UWF. So I'm not sure when the divorce happened with Jake, but he mentions it here on TV. So having a little fun with that. I'm sure it wasn't fun at all. I'm sure he was shooting a little bit there on that. But I love him breaking this down. You should have been man enough to come to me yourself instead of sending attorneys, which is an awesome heel thing to do, especially someone like Dick Slater, who's always walking around in in decent, I won't say nice clothing, not Ric Flair-style suits, but Dick's always trying to look decent out there. He comes off as a more professional guy outside of the ring. I could buy into Slater using attorneys to get the belt held up, barring the rematch. And then Jake says, we heard it in a localized promo, but now it's right here on national TV. Did I mean to DDT Dark Journey? Of course I did. I love that delivery, and I'll do it again. Great stuff from Jake the Snake Roberts. I was going to say, that's the cherry on the cake. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I knew it was her and I feel bad about it. It's like, yeah, I'll do it again. You know, and the, <laughs> and the crowd wouldn't have cared. He, he could have DDT Dark Journey five times in the ring in, in one night. and They would have been happy. Yeah, Jake the Snake Roberts is riding high right now. His character, his delivery, the storyline, everything about him is main event money right now. Oh, no doubt. And there's a reason Jake's been one of my all-time favorites since I've been a fan. And according to Jake and that podcast he did on this feud with Dick Slater and leaving uh, Mid-South for the WWF, 
he feels that the higher ups didn't see what they had. And I'll get into that more on the next episode of regional wrestling with you, Roman. But for now, we're going to close out this edition of regional wrestling. I'm going to take a quick look at the February 9th edition of power pro Jim Ross hosting. And it's a lot of throwback stuff here. As we head back to the Irish McNeil boys club, we're going to see Terry Taylor scoring a win over the shadow back to December 85 TV hacksaw, Jim Duggan defeating Lord humongous, and also here on Power Pro from the Myriad in Oklahoma City, we see Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater over the Fantastics from the fall of 85, 11 minutes shown. That was fun. Yeah, and even though Sawyer and Slater were not a regular tag team, it's believable that they would beat the Fantastics because, I mean, Sawyer and Slater are badasses. Yeah, and the story goes, you know, you take a tag team worker and you stick him out there. He's not going to be able to beat any great single star, at least in wrestling storylines. But if you put the tag team together, they're unbeatable. But in some instances, that's not always true. When you take two of the top heels in all of the world, all of the land, Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer, of course, they were buddies anyway, remember? So they team up here together and they put away the Fantastics in a fun TV match. The Fantastics going to be back here before too long. I'm not, I don't believe that's why they aired this matchup, though, because I don't think they would have jobbed them out here. But still a fun match for TV here as we continue on. More throwback footage, Irish McNeil Boys Club, Jake the Snake Roberts over Brad Armstrong with the DDT. We're going to go back almost a year for that matchup, but I'm not complaining when I get Brad Armstrong on my TV either. And Jake Roberts looking good, scoring the DDT over Brad Armstrong, another former North American champion. And Brad Armstrong, without a doubt, one of the most underrated performers of all time. It's a shame he did not have good promos, but his in-ring work was just dynamite. And I I, I won't put him in there with the uh, top 10 or top five total package workers. But on my scale, Brad Armstrong easily in my top five of just wrestlers to turn on a match and watch on my TV. Easily in my top five Brad Armstrong matches. Love just going back and watching Brad Armstrong. Always have from the time I was a kid when I should have just been enamored with the the bright lights and the big colors and the muscles and the, the ultimate warriors and the demolitions and things like that. And I was. But when I flipped over the channel to my wrestling, I always loved watching Brad Armstrong. Yeah, you know, if there's one move, one word I should say to describe Brad Armstrong for me is just smooth. There was yeah. no wasted effort with Brad. I remember him doing the Russian leg sweep into a float and, over. Into the know, float over, yeah. No wasted movement. And years later, when I saw Bad Street, I'm like, man, who is this guy? This this guy's great. You know, who yeah, where is did he? he come from? And right? then I found out, oh, it's Brad Armstrong. No wonder. And they were clever on that. I think the night Brad uh, Bad Street debuted, Brad Armstrong came out earlier in the night, kind of to corner the young style, or the young pistols, the wild-eyed Southern boys. Uh, I don't think he stuck out there for the match, but he comes out at the beginning of the match. Then they make him yeah. leave ringside, and then he comes back at the end of the match as Bad Street. So it was like the red herring; it threw you off. Well, it can't be Brad Armstrong because I already saw Brad Armstrong. Yeah, I believe that was a Great American Bash, and I thought the right. same thing. Were they kind of testing the fans to? to see if they would recognize that that was Brad under the mask. And yeah, that was, that was pretty smart how they did that. I thought that was clever booking. A couple more matches here on Power Pro back to 1985 again. Lots of 85 matches here this week. Tag team champions Ted DiBiase and Dr. Death over the team of Steve Casey and Ken Glover. Also, Rob Ricksteiner going to score a win here this week on Power Pro over Jimmy Backlund. That's the future Jimmy Del Rey of the Heavenly Bodies. Rob Ricksteiner getting the win with the belly-to-belly suplex. This aired uh, several months ago on Power Pro as well. But uh, yeah, Rick Steiner getting a win here on Power Pro. So clearly they still have something planned for him in the future. They're putting him over here at the end of the program. 
I was a big fan of Jimmy Backlund, Jimmy Del Rey, when he was one half of the Heavenly Bodies. And this match was probably before he was making enough money to eat. Anybody that saw him in the Florida <laughs> Territory, he was pencil thin. Yes. I'm amazed he didn't break every bone in his body every time he got backdropped. Yeah, you know, uh, I've told this story before on my other show on The Grenade, but I didn't get Smoky Mountain Wrestling at the time when the Heavenly Bodies were there, the original Heavenly Bodies of Stan Lane and Tom Pritchard. But I followed the PWI and the other magazines religiously, bought them every month, Roman. So you, you basically followed that territory, which was, which was heavy play in the aftermags. You followed it, you know, as much as you could by reading about it, looking at the pictures, imagining things, just kind of putting it together yourself in your head. And I, and, and I loved Stan Lane. So I was so sad to see him go when he left at the end of 1990 in the NWA. So to see Stan Lane back in the mix of things, feuding with the Rock and Roll Express of all people, I was so excited. And I don't know when that, that switchover happened exactly off the top of my head from Stan Lane to Del Rey, but I wasn't privy to it. I wasn't aware of it heading into their debut in the WWF in 93. So I leave the room. I'm, I remember this like yesterday. I'm at, I'm at my cousin's house. It's the summer, so there's no school. I'm staying the night over his house, and I go get a drink of water or using the bathroom or something. And I come back, and he said, the heavenly bodies are coming out. And I knew right away who they were. Oh, it's Stan Lane. And I got so excited. And then I'm like, what is this? What is this on my TV screen? I knew Jim Cornette. I knew Tom Pritchard, but that was not Stan Lane. No, who the hell is Jimmy Del Rey? And then come to find out it was that pencil-thin Jim Backlund. Yeah, and kind of a cool little tribute. I heard Cornette say they called him Del Rey because Stan Lane was billed from Del Rey, Florida. Oh, okay. So I thought that was kind of, kind of a cool tribute. That is cool. Yeah, definitely. I, I ne- I'd never heard that. So that makes sense, and that's that's pretty cool deal. So it was a nice little tribute there, a little shout-out to Stan Lane on his way out of the wrestling business, or at least out of the ring. He'll pop up in the WWF for a while there on uh, commentary. Yeah, I, I like Stan on commentary, but I, I definitely miss him in the ring, that's for sure. And that'll wrap it up this week, Roman. We covered two weeks of February TV here for the Mid-South Wrestling Territory. When we come back, we're going to cover probably at least another two weeks of TV, going to try to close out the month of February. We're even going to look at a couple of Sam Houston Coliseum show results here for the month of February, February 14th and the 28th. Of course, we know the held-up North American title going to be on the line. Jake Roberts taking on Dick Slater on February 14th in Houston. And on February 28th, we're going to get that big tag team cage match between the Fabulous Ones and the Guerreros. We're going to look at both of those shows and a couple more weeks of TV as well as things continue to get hotter and hotter here in the Mid-South Wrestling Territory. We can still call it Mid-South for now. Yeah, we still got a few more weeks of Mid-South. And uh, I wanted to thank you, Ray, for letting me come on this journey with you. Reliving this has just been a blast. It's been so much fun watching these old episodes and reliving the good old days. And thank you again to everybody out there that's been supporting us and listening to what we have to say about this. And so much has happened. I mean, we're only six weeks into the year, another 46 weeks to go by my calculations. Just think about that, Roman. We got a whole lot more headed our way. And of course, I have to thank you once again for joining the show. Looking forward to covering more of February 1986 and Mid-South Wrestling with you very soon. Well, thank you. And I know we both have crazy schedules, but I know we're committed to getting together as often as we can to uh, relive the good old days. Okay, guys, and that's going to wrap things up again here. Another episode in the books. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't know which one we're going to drop here next week. Will it be more February 86 here in Mid-South? Or will we begin January 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling? You guys will just have to wait and see. 
And a reminder to follow me, Ray Russell, on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. I want to thank you guys again so very much, all of the loyal listeners out there. But until next time, I want to thank my guest co-host, Roman Gomez, for joining me here on Regional Wrestling, where we talk the territories. No Hamburgers, no soft drinks. <laughs>